from KQED. We often look back into California history on Bay Curious to give us context about how and why something came to be the way that it is today. And many of our stories start at the gold rush and a pretty romanticized version of that story, I'll admit. You know it. Thousands of people making their way to this land to build cities and fortunes for a fresh start. California was a place where a nobody could become a somebody, and people came from all over the world to be a part of that. When we look at the California we are today, so much of it is because of what happened during the gold rush. But as today's question asker knows, there are darker parts of that history that we don't often hear about. Something that's baked into the very foundations of this state. Is I've done a little bit of research in understanding the gold mining era and the gold rush. I learned that a lot of people from the South came to California and they brought their slaves. My name is Doug Spindler. I live in the East Bay. As California was filling up with gold seekers, a civil war over slavery was brewing in the United States. California may have entered the Union as a free state, a place that prohibited slavery, but it didn't act like it. Some of our first leaders built their wealth by exploiting the labor of enslaved people. And it's very, I find it very interesting that we don't know any of this part of California's history. And yet this is so big and, and so important. That history is coming to light right now in a big way. California has launched a task force charged with recommending how the state should make amends for the harm done to Black Californians by decades of slavery, segregation, and racist policies. Today in Bay Curious, we look back at California's history with slavery. Then we'll turn to the work of the California Reparations Task Force. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Stay with us. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Founded in 1980, it's still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And still the pale ale that sparked a craft beer revolution. Sierra Nevada, still the one. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Otis Taylor, KQED's supervising senior editor for Race and Equity, is here to help us examine California's early history and why it's coming up as part of the conversation about reparations. Welcome, Otis. Hey, thank you for having me. Now, a lot of people know that gold was found near Sacramento in 1848, which started the gold rush and brought hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world to California. But not as many people know that some of those gold seekers were enslavers. Otis, tell us about that history. Sure. California entered the Union in 1850 as a free state, meaning that slavery was outlawed. But the founding fathers of the state allowed enslavers 
to come to the state or exist in the state with their property, meaning human bodies, slaves. And they used the enslaved to enrich themselves by uh, working the land, but especially working in the mines. And when California became a state in 1850, this was a moment when America was grappling a lot with slavery. You know, the Civil War would begin within a decade. How did some of the early leaders in California shape the state's position on slavery in those first couple years of statehood? The messaging to the rest of the country, and particularly Congress, was that we're not going to allow slavery. That was kind of the implicit agreement for statehood. But what the California Constitution says is not what was practiced in this state. There were people who were enslaved already in California, and there were people who were brought after the Constitution was ratified to be enslaved in this state. So this historian, uh, this professor at Oregon State University, Stacey L. Smith, spoke to KQED Forum about this. California is unique in regards to being a free state in that you know, a lot of free states during this period, especially in the Northeast, were fighting against fugitive slave laws. Uh, the Federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was this really new, harsh uh, law that required the free states to cooperate and participate in re-enslaving people who had run north uh, seeking their freedom. So California did the opposite, which is not just cooperating with the Fugitive Slave Act, the federal one from 1850, but passing its own 1852 Fugitive Slave Act that essentially was a supplement to that federal act and pledged that the state would uh, help the federal government do everything it could to help protect slaveholders and not freedom seekers. So really, every chance they got, California legislators were siding with Southern enslavers. In fact, many of them had come from the South and had even owned people themselves. Can you give me an example of how California's Fugitive Slave Act was actually used? So the gold rush brought a lot of uh, speculators from the South out. One of those families was the Perkins family. And the Perkins family had three enslaved men in tow. One of them uh, being Carter Perkins. There's also Robert Perkins and a man named Sandy Jones. And these men toiled in the mines for several years. And then the Perkins family freed these men. These men started their own businesses. They got involved with activism. Well, after the state passed the Fugitive Slave Act, Perkins petitioned the Supreme Court to re-enslave these men. They get arrested in the middle of the night. All of their property is confiscated, taken away. They were teamsters, uh, mule wagon drivers. They're hauled in their own cart with their own mules or oxen uh, to the court in Sacramento. And guess what? Our state Supreme Court in a free state allowed these three men to be re-enslaved. We have some evidence that in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court used the precedent in this Perkins case in California for making the much more famous, well-known, and important Dred Scott decision. And that Dred Scott decision essentially said, among other things, well, first, that Black people were not citizens of the United States, 
But in terms of the West, importantly, said that the territories can't close out slavery. So you had this dichotomy that just doesn't it's not squared with how we think about California, with how California actually is or was. So the state Supreme Court is basically undermining the idea of California as a free state. Right. So all these laws were going on the books before the Civil War. But then the war happens. The Union wins. What happened in California after the Civil War ended in 1865? All of us in, in, in school learned about the Emancipation Proclamation that was intended to free uh, the enslaved, but also um, provide rights to them. So emancipation itself, the 13th Amendment, there was some grousing about it in California, but California legislators really opposed the 14th and 15th Amendments. The 14th Amendment essentially granted citizenship to Black people. The 15th Amendment essentially granted um, Black men the right to vote. The state of California was in the opposition of both of those amendments. Why? Because it gave uh, black people access to power and black people became a proxy to any non-white having access to power. And that includes the indigenous population and the Chinese that had begun moving into the state. There are all of these concerns among whites in uh, California that Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans were going to get new rights, new legal protections, and the right to vote under the 14th and 15th Amendments. And so California fought really hard against those amendments. They ultimately lost, right? The amendments got ratified. But California was among some of the few states that really fought Reconstruction. And that really set the stage for some of California's other racist laws, particularly against the Chinese community that was here. As I was learning about this, one thing that really struck me was just how all of this made it easier for settlers to enslave the indigenous population as well. Tell us about that. What the early laws did was it set the table for um, giving cover to the continued decimation of the native population in this state. There are accounts of bands of of men who follow around the U.S. Army. And when the U.S. Army gets into a skirmish with Native people, they come in and steal the children in the aftermath. Or they provoke war against Native people, just come in and raid their camps and steal their children and kill the adults. California itself was very complicit, the state of California, complicit in these hunting expeditions. It wasn't just rogue bands of vigilantes doing it. That was the case sometimes, but a lot of it is actually authorized and paid for by the state of California. These are, you know, horrifying laws and events, but I can imagine some people listening to this and thinking to themselves, what does this have to do with today? The ramifications that you see today, uh, the racial disparities in in wealth, uh, criminal justice, housing, the disproportionate number of black people who are unhoused and living on our streets, those ramifications are directly linked to California's founding, its inception. You know, that is the legacy of this history, and that is what we're trying to wrestle with right now. 
Otis Taylor, KQED's supervising senior editor for race and equity. Thank you for walking us through this and leading this work at KQED. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now I want to talk with another KQED colleague, Lakshmi Sarah, who has been reporting on the work of the California Reparations Task Force. Hi, Lakshmi. Hi, Olivia. So California is the first state to convene a reparations task force on this scale. So this is a pretty big deal. Who is on that task force and what are they setting out to do? Yeah, so it is a big deal. And the task force consists of nine members and they are specifically looking at Reparations proposals for African-Americans with a special consideration for those who were enslaved in the United States. So there are lawyers, professors, politicians, and activists, all of people who have been doing work in reparations or reparations-related space. Now, the task force has been inviting people with direct experience of these issues to testify about those experiences. And I understand there have been a lot of difficult stories shared about the way that racism has affected people's lives and their families' ability to thrive. Lakshmi, was there a story that really stuck with you? Yeah, Jonathan Burgess testified about his family to the task force in one of the first meetings. And his story stuck out um, not only because he has documented it, but he's also very passionate. And there's a long history there. My name is Jonathan Burgess. I am a fifth generation Californian and direct descendant to Rufus Burgess uh, and William Burris, um, both prominent figures in California before California was part of the union. His great-grandfather was a man named Rufus M. Burgess, and he came to California before it was a state. He was probably enslaved um, and then was freed. And Jonathan has documentation of the land that they owned in Coloma, which was a mining town in the Sierra foothills. So this right here is is a copy of a patent letter that my great-grandfather Rufus M. got when he got his property. We were talking about, you know, the documentation that he has at the time. So we have maps showing that this land was a blacksmith. There were orchards there. It was like, you know, a thriving area. And what I want people to know is that this valley was full of orchards. I've got documents and recordings. My family was packing fruit from those same orchards. And then if you fast forward to the 1960s, he talks about how the state was able to use eminent domain to say, you know, we're going to reclaim this land. And all that was condemned and taken away. The state took that land, and now there's like um, a little museum on there, and it's now part of a state park. And the result that Jonathan talks about is the fact that his family was not able to build the generational wealth that other families in the area were able to build, specifically, you know, compared to their white neighbors. When I look at some of the families that came over here, after our family, and I look at their still generational wealth and land today, it's hurtful. They were able to keep it. There was no institutional intervention. My great-grandfather and great-great did the same thing, worked just as hard, and yet there was no generational wealth. So for him, the conversation about reparations is one not only of acknowledging and really um, affirming the past history, but then doing what reparations is supposed to do, which is repair and atone. What I would like to see is, uh, you know, the land that's owned by the state of California. 
be reinstated and returned and there would be some sort of restitution paid for that land because they condemned orchards. That was a way of making a living. Now, Jonathan Burgess is an example of someone who might benefit from the work of this task force, but this group has a big job to do. What is their end game here? The Reparations Task Force is working to really unpack what are some of the harms that were done and what can be done to fix it. And what they're talking about is specifically compensation. What might compensation look like, whether that's money or investment or, you know, even scholarships for education um, could be part of the compensation. And then also how might California envision a formal apology in some form or another that goes along with that. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. California Reparations Task Force will send their first set of recommendations to the state legislature this summer. A final report is expected next year. Lakshmi Sarah, Otis Taylor, and others at KQED will be following this story closely, and you can check their work out at kqed.org reparations. We'll put that link in our show notes, along with some others if you want to dig deeper on this history. Thanks to Doug Spindler, our question asker this week, and to the team at KQED Forum for sharing their tape from their discussion with Stacey L. Smith. Katrina Schwartz edited and produced this episode. The rest of our team is Sebastian Mignobuccelli, Brendan Willard, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Bay Curious is made at member-supported KQED in San Francisco. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play March's trivia game? Every month, we'll read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a sweet prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is... This Bay Area high school holds the longest winning streak in high school football. They won 151 games in a row between 1992 and 2004. What is the name of the school? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.